Heavenly Father, now as we open your word together, I pray that your Holy Spirit would move through it, just as surely as your Holy Spirit authored it through the mouths of Paul and those other authors of Scripture, to give us that gospel that is holy of you and from you and to your glory, and may you be glorified in the ministry of the gospel this morning in us, we pray, amen. Please be seated. My father was once doing street evangelism with uh, a good friend who was more experienced in street evangelism in Brampton, uh, where he was working at a church, and he got into a conversation with a man who had a number of very well-prepared arguments against the gospel, against the Bible. And one of those arguments, um, he, the man quoted 2 Timothy 2.8, in which Paul says to Timothy, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Aha, says the man. Paul wants you to remember Christ as preached in his gospel. Paul has his own gospel. He knows he does. It's different than Jesus' gospel or the gospels of the other scripture writers. Therefore, the Bible is internally inconsistent. It proclaims different gospels. My father's friend, who was more experienced in street evangelism, later told him that this is a, a very common objection to the Bible from Muslims. It's taught to Muslims as an objection to the Bible. This is one of their arguments why the Bible is corrupted, why it's internally inconsistent. If Jesus existed, which the Muslims do say he did, he is still not who Christians say that he is. So since there has been a promise of the gospel, we know that there have been arguments from every direction that have tried to refute that gospel, particularly arguing that it is not the gospel that comes from God. We know we can expect opposition to the gospel, not just from other religions, but from within the established church, from those who either out of pride or out of insecurity do not think the gospel is powerful enough to save. They think there must be something for us to do, at least a little bit more that we need to accomplish. This, of course, is what we saw last week was happening in the Galatian churches. These teachers had come, these Judaizers, who were trying to discredit the gospel, mounted arguments against it, and one of their chief arguments for discrediting the gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone was to discredit the one who had taught the Galatians that gospel, the apostle Paul. And so these new teachers' objection to Paul was very similar to this objection that my father heard from this Muslim gentleman. Paul is just a self-appointed apostle proclaiming a gospel that he has made up for himself. He didn't get his gospel from any authoritative source. He didn't get it in Jerusalem from the other apostles. If he did somehow go to Jerusalem and get it, it's pretty clear that he messed with it. This is why Paul started his letter to the Galatians right from the first verse saying that he was an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Paul insists he is an apostle appointed by God to proclaim the gospel that he received from God. So now Paul is going to spend some time on his own biography, and he's going to defend the source of his apostleship 
as well as the source and the veracity, the truthfulness of the gospel that he taught, the Galatians. So we're going to turn to Galatians chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 11. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11 to 24. Galatians 1, verses 11 to 24. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus." Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me." There are two key things I think we can see in this little bit of biography from Paul. And the first is this. Paul's biography demonstrates his authority as an apostle preaching the gospel of God. In essence, Paul's biography proves the point that he already declared in the introduction to Galatians, that God is the one who appointed him as an apostle, and God is the one who gave Paul his gospel. Paul insists here The gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Paul is confident his gospel is not something that he or any other person made up, because he didn't get it from any person. He couldn't even have got it from the apostles. He says after his conversion, he didn't set foot in Jerusalem where most of the apostles were living and ministering for three years. Not just Jerusalem, but Paul says all the churches in Judea didn't know him to see him. They had never met him. So no church within the common sphere of the apostles had ever laid eyes on Paul until long after he had started publicly preaching the gospel, long after people could hear and verify the gospel he was proclaiming. These are facts that the Galatians could very easily have verified by sending letters to any number of people. It would also have been hard to argue that Paul must have heard and accepted the gospel before he claims to have got it from God. Because up until that moment, he was a very well-known enemy of the gospel and persecutor of the church. It would have been a death warrant to try and convert Paul. So there really was no opportunity for Paul to get his gospel from the apostles or from any other person. Rather, as he says, he received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. 
We know from Acts quite well what that revelation first looked like. Uh, we get the account of it in Acts, and Paul explains it a number of times. I'd like to go to his uh, explanation of his conversion in Acts 26, as he tells it to King Agrippa. Acts chapter 26, verse 12. Acts 26, verses 12 to 18. In this connection, that is, in his work of persecuting the church, Paul says, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things which you have seen in me and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So just as Paul told the Galatians, this revelation of Jesus was a revelation of the gospel itself. To see Christ whom Paul and everyone else would definitely agree was crucified. To see him now risen and also even glorified is to visibly see the gospel, to see it accomplished, to see it come about. And this revelation, in it, Christ begins to teach Paul the content, the application of what he is witnessing what does it mean that Jesus, who Paul knew was crucified, is now risen? It means that both Jew and Gentile may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, set apart, made holy by faith in Jesus. So the source of Paul's gospel was the very revelation which confirmed the gospel to him. The visible presence of Jesus Christ died and resurrected from the dead. Jesus indicates to Paul in this revelation that this is not the last time Paul will see him. There is more that he himself, Jesus, is going to teach Paul directly. This likely explains some of what Paul was doing during his time in Arabia, particularly in Damascus. There were certainly some believers in Arabia, in Damascus, but this was by no means the Oxford or Cambridge of gospel education. If anything, Arabia was a hostile place to talk about and learn the gospel. This was not somewhere you would go to learn the teachings of Jesus. So this confirms all the more that while Paul was in Arabia, he was receiving instruction in the gospel from God directly. We also see in Paul's testimony that he did not receive only the gospel from Jesus, but he also received a special commission to proclaim it. 
as he tells the Galatians, he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that the purpose for which Jesus was revealed to Paul, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. The gospel was given to Paul specifically by Jesus because Jesus had a special job that he needed Paul specifically to do. Jesus said to Paul, we read in Acts, I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and those in which I will appear to you. This particular combination, Jesus said he's appointed Paul as a servant and a witness, bears special significance. It is an apostolic commission. The 12 apostles, remember, were commissioned to serve. Remember Jesus washing their feet and giving them a commission as servants. And then also given a special uh, commission as witnesses. Jesus told them, you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This was the general understanding of what an apostle was in the early church. It was known they were a particular servant of Christ who had witnessed him resurrected from the dead and received a special commission, a special commission to proclaim the gospel and write the gospel for the purpose of founding the church. We can see those first 11 apostles resting on this definition of an apostle, defending their ministry based upon their witness. Peter defends himself against false teachers by saying, for we, the apostles, did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John also, as he contends for the gospel against false teachers, says the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this role of witnesses who could testify to what they had seen, could testify that they received the gospel from Jesus and then watched the gospel unfold, was a direct cornerstone of the apostolic ministry. And as John says, it's based on those things that the apostles can then preach to others, come have fellowship with us because our fellowship is with Christ. They can then found the church. They can grow the church, inviting people into the fellowship based upon what they have seen and heard from Jesus. This is how they founded the church. As Ephesians says, the church now rests on a foundation, which is the apostles and prophets, Jesus himself being the cornerstone that they rest on. This is why you do not need to labor long or struggle when someone calls themselves an apostle now, a special servant above and beyond just being a preacher, just being a pastor, just being an elder. You can just say, did you witness Jesus' resurrection, uh, the resurrected Christ, for the purpose of delivering his authoritative word for the foundation of the church? No? Then it's settled. You're not an apostle. Paul agrees with this definition. 
Paul defends his own apostleship by showing that he received a direct visual revelation of the resurrected Jesus, where he not only received the gospel from him, but also received his apostolic commission alongside the other eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Now that being said, other people have come forward in history and said that they did see the resurrected Jesus very much the way that Paul did a direct revelation from Jesus or from Gabriel or from a rock or some other divine source of good news. What makes Paul's witness different from theirs? This is why it's important for Paul to explain that while he did not get his gospel or his apostolic commission from the other apostles, he did have his gospel and commission verified by the other apostles. Eventually, finally, Paul did go to Jerusalem he saw Peter, who he calls by his Greek name Cephas in this passage. He saw James, who was either the son of Alphaeus, one of the twelve, or was James the earthly brother of Jesus, who though not one of the twelve was very close to them and very close to their ministry. Paul says he was with them for 15 days. Not enough time to learn the things that he was frankly already publicly preaching, but enough time to verify that he was indeed preaching the same gospel as them, that he had been commissioned just as they had as an apostle. They clearly had got the same gospel information from the same source. So even if your friend claiming to be an apostle then goes on to say, oh yeah, I, I saw the resurrected Jesus. I had a vision just like Paul did. You can ask your friend, all right, which of the other living apostles did you then go to so that they could publicly verify your apostolic ministry as eyewitnesses of Jesus uh, resurrected? None. Okay, you're still not an apostle. This is quite simple. It's actually quite a happy, comforting answer that you can give every time a new movement comes along to say that God is doing something above and beyond the ordinary boring thing that y'all are doing every Sunday in church. God's got a new age coming. God's got a new move of the spirit and he's got new people appointed to do something just like he did through those first 12 apostles. You do not need to fret. This has happened time and again. Islam itself, right, was a new revelation of God to add to what had been revealed to Jews and Christians before. The Middle Ages was full of new movements of the Spirit. New ages began that we haven't even heard of. Mormonism, of course, the Jehovah's Witnesses. Pentecostalism began by saying this was a second Pentecost at which new apostles were being appointed and were given new gifts to found a new age of the church. Now we have the new apostolic reformation, and I'm sure we have 50 other movements that I have never heard of, that you have never heard of, and you do not need to feel burdened each time something new comes along. You are free. The bar for being an apostle for this special founding ministry of the church who can authoritatively give scriptures for God, who needed to be able to give a ministry directly from the Holy Spirit. That bar is incredibly and rightfully high. Paul himself saw that bar as high. It was very important for him to carefully verify his ministry as an apostle. He knew that it was serious. 
It was serious before God to claim that he had received this vision and commission from Jesus. At what point he exclaims, right? In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Now, it is entirely impossible for anyone after the first century to even claim that they are an apostle. That they have either the credentials or the ability to verify that ministry. Because the apostolic ministry is complete. The foundation which the apostles were meant to lay for the church is laid. It is no longer needed or possible for eyewitnesses of Jesus to author scriptures to found the church. We can be happy this ministry is complete. Not even your elders and pastors need to do the ministry of apostles. We can rest upon what the apostles have delivered. We can enjoy the apostolic ministry and its fruit. So do not let new movements, new ideas come out of left field and trouble you, upset you, feel like God must be doing something and you just can't figure it out. You are free from those who are trying to twist or lower God's bar for commissioning apostles, for revelation. You can ignore them. You can rebuke them if you're in the right position to. And rest upon the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. That is the house that rests on Jesus Christ as the cornerstone. If a new movement comes laying a new foundation, Christ is not the cornerstone of that house. But then it stands to reason to ask, doesn't it? Even if we can agree, okay, Jesus called Paul to be an apostle. Why did he call Paul to be an apostle? The other apostles were not just eyewitnesses of Jesus resurrected, but they knew him all his life. No, they knew him for a long time. They had seen his miracles. They could ver verify things that they had seen, evidences of who he was. They had heard God verbally affirm him at his baptism. Some of them had seen the transfiguration. That's the revelation of majesty that Peter was referring to as a, a, a foundation for his apostleship. They saw him die. They saw the empty tomb. They watched him ascend. What's the need for Paul here? When the apostles themselves went looking for a replacement for Judas, Peter himself says, okay, what should we be looking for? What would make an ideal apostle? And he says, one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So you see the definition. What are they looking for? A witness to his resurrection. But the best resume for a man to fill that position is one who has seen every sign of who Jesus was going back even to his baptism. If this is what was preferable, even to the apostles, of what value is Paul? What's he going to add to their ministry? This is part of the ground on which Paul's opponents could mount their attacks. What would be the point of Paul being an apostle? Why would God want this man as an apostle? We already have these apostles who we all know and can rest in as being the ones who knew Jesus through his whole ministry. Now, Paul recognized that he held a peculiar place among the other apostles. 
in Corinthians, as he lists the witnesses of Jesus resurrected, he says, Jesus appeared to Cephas, remember that's Peter, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, coming up in the rear, he appeared to also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. So why was Paul made an apostle if he himself recognizes that he was one untimely born who barely deserved the title? This is the second thing that we can see in this bit of biography from Paul. Paul's biography demonstrates to the Gentiles the power of the gospel of grace. Jesus gave Paul a particular commission even among the apostles not just to preach the gospel, but to lead the charge in preaching it to the Gentiles. Remember the central problem that was going on in Galatia, which required Paul to write this urgent, earnest letter. Men from Judah had come saying that it is not enough just to be saved by grace. It is not enough just to look at the things that God has done inciting your salvation. You need to become a Jew if you want to become a Christian, specifically someone who is circumcised and keeps the Jewish law. Through many of the epistles, you can see that there is this inferiority among the Gentiles. They've got an inferiority complex. They looked at this long history that the Jews had as God's people, and they wondered, can we actually just get saved in the same way as the Jews? Can, can we be justified just like they were to be welcomed into God's family? Is there not more that we'd have to do to sort of catch up and then we can all be saved together? And through all of Paul's writing, his message to the Gentiles resounds very loudly. It is grace alone that saves Jew and Gentile. Both are saved only and entirely by what Christ has done. And as Paul defends his gospel of grace to the Gentiles, he can now point to his own biography as proof, not just that he is preaching the only gospel, the gospel from God, but that he is preaching the gospel empowered by God and God alone. Paul is living proof that the gospel of grace can accomplish what no person ever could. No man acting on their best power, the best pragmatist, the best salesperson in the world, nobody could have manipulated or cajoled or persuaded Paul into becoming a Christian. <laughs> Paul says this himself, you've heard of my former life in Judaism how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. There was nobody more important in Judaism in Paul's day than the scribes and the rabbis. And Paul's mentor, Gamaliel, was chief among them. And Paul was his star pupil. 
Paul could very well have been on his way to becoming one of the most important people in Jerusalem, in the whole Jewish religion. What's more, Paul led the way in persecuting Christianity. That was his special job. No one hated the church more than Paul. He wasn't even really assigned to persecute them. He went and asked for the commission. He saw Christianity as a threat to the tradition and the faith of the Jewish people, and he would not rest until it was stamped out. No one was in less danger of becoming a Christian than Paul. For those who were already Christians, trying to convert Paul would have been like trying to convert the leader of the Taliban, trying to convert the imam who's in charge of Mecca where the Muslims go for their pilgrimage, like trying to convert the Dalai Lama. It would have been like selling a Big Mac to Stalin. There's no way you're gonna wanna try. You're very likely going to end up dead. And because it was so difficult, it would have been very easy to wash your hands of trying to save Paul. He's just too wicked. He's too far off. He's too consumed with his own self-righteousness. He hates Jesus too much. He's too much of a sinner. Jesus wouldn't even want me to try and save a person like Paul. Paul is the person on your street or at your work or in your family who is so opposed to Christianity who is so happy to enjoy their life of sin, who is so happy that this rubs against the Bible, that this would offend God if he existed. The person who is so against the gospel that they are the last person that you want to preach the gospel to. That's Paul. No amount of pragmatic preaching or seeker-sensitive ministry could soften that person's heart. Nothing is going to do it. You can reimagine church, you can rewrite the gospel, you can change scripture as much as you want, you can soften it, you can water it down, you can do everything in human power to try and make Christianity something that they would enjoy and it would fail. But God has not only said that he can do what is impossible for us, but he has promised to do what is impossible for us. And he accomplishes what is impossible for us to do every day. And so Jesus did a work in Paul that Paul and no one else could ever have done in Paul. Paul explains that this grace was actually working long before Paul was even born. He says, he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. This is the extent of the grace that Paul came to learn and understand and preach. How much of a hand could Paul have had in his salvation before he was born? Before that revelation of Jesus, before he had repented, before he'd even heard of Jesus, God had extended his grace to Paul. God called Paul entirely by his own power before Paul was even born. How much can you say this had to do with what Paul had done 
or who Paul was or what Paul could claim. If Paul had any hand in determining whether he would be saved, would Paul really be anywhere other than suffering his just punishment in hell? The only reason Paul was saved, the only reason is God's gracious decision that Paul would be saved. (laughs) Grace all the way. And because God made that decision, not even an anti-Christian like Paul could get in the way of that decision to save Paul. And this reality Paul wants us to see is not a particular reality for Paul. He had a special setting apart as an apostle, but this calling to belong to God is true for all those who are saved by the death and resurrection of Jesus. So even while Paul is defending his particular role as an apostle, he has also already said of the Galatians themselves in 1.6 what he just said about himself, that God called you in the grace of Christ, just like he says God called Paul himself by his grace. That word calling in scripture as it relates primarily to us, refers first and foremost to God's decision before we were born, before we had done good or bad, that we would be those who are set apart to belong to the kingdom of Jesus. The called could very easily have been a synonym for Christian in the language of Paul. Before Jesus even went to the cross, God knew the full number of those who would belong to him. God had already called them. If you weren't called by then, then you are not one of those who receive his grace. Just like with Paul, it was due to nothing in us, no expectation that we would love or accept him. God wasn't calling those who deserved to be called before they were born. It was entirely to gloriously demonstrate his grace. That from among those who were born as his enemies, enslaved to their wicked will, serving the kingdom of darkness, those who would never have chosen to love God, among this group of people, none of whom God could have expected to choose him, God himself would reveal, regenerate, convert, work repentance and faith and sanctification in them by his own power set them apart, and call them to belong to himself. These new teachers in Galatia hated how arbitrary that sounded. There's got to be something. There's got to be something you can point to. It can't just be that these are the ones that God called and these aren't the ones that God called. Give me just a little bit more. They didn't want to be the called. They wanted to be those that were chosen because of something they'd done. That were chosen because of at least some distinction. Give me something other than just being called by God's grace. And these insecure Galatians, hearing that grace might not be quite enough to save them. These poor Gentiles couldn't help but think maybe the Judaizers are right. We are those untimely born, those sort of saved out of left field. Maybe there really was some catching up we had to do. 
some little extra thing we needed to perform to get onto a level playing field with these Jews who have been God's people for so long. How could the Gentiles suddenly be welcomed? How could we suddenly have this inpouring of just everybody and their aunt and their grandmother without us having sort of something that we've got to accomplish to become a little bit more like these Jews who have been there from generation to generation to generation? And so God called a man, a Jewish man, a former leader in Judaism, the rising star of Judaism, who could confidently look at his own Jewish life, studying and teaching all those traditions, who could even look at Jewish history, who could look at Jewish laws he's going to do in Galatians, and say, here I am, walking, talking proof that nothing less and nothing other than grace and grace alone makes anybody, Jew or Gentile, a part of God's people. Nothing else. That's the end. This is why God chose Paul as an apostle. This is why he added the one untimely born. His strange calling, coming in later, clearly against his own merit, but no less equal to the other apostles, reflects the Gentiles' own salvation. Added later, clearly against their own merit, no less equal in the kingdom of God. To those Gentiles who would feel far off and insecure, like second-rate members of God's family. God chose a man to preach the gospel of grace whose testimony itself would be the strongest confirmation of the gospel of grace. This is why Jesus revealed himself to Paul, specifically to make Paul the preacher to the Gentiles. In calling Paul, God had even good use for Paul's training in Judaism. Paul, remember, had said he was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, he says, my own people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul knew the Jewish law better than the Judaizers did. He knew Jewish history better than the Judaizers did. He knew the Torah. He knew what it meant to be a Jew, what it only ever meant to be a Jew. And he would use that extensive knowledge now to explain how all the Old Testament witness was pointing to the gospel of grace coming to save Jew and Gentile. We can see that the churches themselves recognized when this man got saved, the power of the gospel. They saw it. Paul says in 22 to 24, I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. What, what Paul got saved? Saul? Gamaliel's guy, Saul? No. God's purpose in saving Paul was to glorify himself. And that purpose was clearly displayed when the gospel saved Paul. Because everybody knew what Paul had just said to the Galatians. Nobody could have saved Paul. Nobody wanted to try. Paul's testimony didn't leave room for any single person to even possibly have saved Paul. His testimony certainly did not give any glory to Paul. The only glory that comes from Paul's testimony, 
that the churches can clearly see is to God. And if Paul can get saved, then God deserves a lot of glory. That is ultimately why God called Paul by his grace, to get glory for saving Paul. And that is the Galatians' assurance that God is happy to call them just by grace as well, without any work that they have to do. That is why God has always had a people for himself since he called Abraham. Because God delights to save those who seem far off from him to display his glorious power by doing by grace what no man can do. This is all the assurance the Galatians needed that God loved his gospel of grace more than anything those Judaizers were going to tell them. More than any gospel that any of us could come up with. Anything that tells us There's just still something for you to do for God to approve of you, to give approval to you, to give you your glory. No. God says, don't you dare diminish the gospel of grace that gives glory to me. So friends, the salvation of Paul, even his special calling as an apostle, is also meant to be our confidence God really does love the gospel best that gives glory to him and to his son. That is why he called the man that seemed furthest from the gospel to be one of its special spokespeople, to testify to the power of the gospel as it was proclaimed among those who felt most far off, most weak. We still use the word testimony, testify, don't we? to talk about our own account of what God has done for us as Christians. One thing that I have often noticed that I know many people have often noticed when it comes to Christian testimonies, particularly those that Christians give uh, as they are being baptized, is that we often feel tempted to mount a defense from our own life and our own experience why we deserve to be giving this testimony why we should get baptized even, this declaration that you have simply become a Christian. We're tempted to talk just a little bit, well, here's what I've done. Here's how I've changed. Or even here's the commitments that I've made. Here's what I've committed to do. Some of you might even be afraid of baptism. Because, yeah, I've, I've trusted in the gospel. Yeah, those things Jesus did are true. Yep, yep, I'm, I, I, I have faith in in that, but but I just haven't done enough to stand up here and get baptized. I haven't made enough of a change. I haven't reached the right point, the right level of faith. I haven't got enough things that I can tell everybody publicly testifying so that they, they can know I'm a Christian. This shows how insecure we can all feel about the power of the gospel. We think that we're being insecure with ourselves, right? Because we're the ones that haven't done enough. We're the ones that aren't good enough. We're the ones that need to do more. But that is an insecurity we have in Christ. We do not feel confident about what he has accomplished for us. It clearly isn't quite enough. I would need a little bit of evidence that comes from my side before I could be a Christian. 
Baptism itself is, of course, a testimony, isn't it? It's a visible depiction of what Christ accomplished for us. We are buried with Christ, right? Under the water. We are raised up in Christ, out of the water. We are cleansed. This happens to us, right? Water acts on you. You didn't act on you. You're entirely passive. That is what baptism displays. Just as you were passive in the things that baptism represents. Baptism declares what Jesus has already accomplished entirely for us and to us and in us. And our baptism testimony, if we do stand up here and say anything, is just saying with our mouths what our baptism testifies to. Our testimony is never meant to be an autobiography. It's not your story. It's not a wedding speech. It is a testimony. It is talking about what someone else has done. That's why we call it a testimony. Every true testimony is at its heart exactly the same. And it's the only thing we want to hear. While I was still an enemy, Christ died for the ungodly. That's, your, that's our testimony. Because that's all that a Christian is. Not someone who has done certain things, who has achieved certain things. Someone who can testify that what God has done and achieved is for them. The called, set apart, the chosen, the saved, the justified, the sanctified, the glorified, The one things have been done for and done to. That's what a Christian is. Never the one who did. Never the one who got done. Never the one who made the right choices. As long as you are embarrassed by your testimony, as long as you would prefer one that showed the great ways you've changed, the great things you've done, the great commitments you've made, as long as that's the gospel that you wish you had, your gospel is not only going to keep you insecure, but it's just going to create insecurity in anyone else who hears it. It's going to be powerless for them. Because then they're going to be stuck with that insecurity that you felt. Well, what have I done? What have I accomplished? What commitments have I made? If you are feeling insecure about whether you are a Christian or whether you could be a Christian, whether you could become a Christian, just stop looking at yourself. Don't evaluate whether you've sinned too much or done enough good things or made the right commitments. Stop looking at yourself and look at Jesus. Get yourself entirely out of your view and look at him. Look at him in the gospel of grace. Look at him in the gospel that was powerful enough to save Paul. Do you love that gospel? Do you think it's true? That he came and died and rose? Do you think it's good? Do you love that Jesus died to take the punishment for sinners and that he rose again to defeat the power of death so that we could have eternal life with God? You think it's good that God did this for sinners and we could do nothing for ourselves? Do you desire that would be your gospel? 
Do you believe that that could be your God? Then stop asking what needs to be done. Because he already accomplished everything. Don't doubt him by asking what there is for you to do. If you believe and love what he's done, then those things have been done for you. Be confident in it. Be baptized in it if that is what is needed. Be bold to testify with Paul what God has done for you. What he alone could do for you. That is not just your confidence that you are a Christian. Now that is a confidence that you can take when you're talking to your neighbor or your coworker or that family member, even the one that seems furthest off from the gospel, no matter how far from Jesus they seem, go proclaim the gospel confidently, expectantly, and hopefully if you trust this gospel by grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone because God loves getting glory for saving people who we could not have saved. That's why he saved Paul and that is why he saved you or why he could save you. It's why he saves anyone. And we come as the called, the justified, the sanctified, and we delight in the purpose of that gospel. We come and we say all glory to our God and Father who saved us, and all glory to Jesus Christ, our Savior. Let's pray. Father, we desire that you would get all glory. And Father, if there is that impulse arising in our hearts to take some of that glory and feel like we need to give it to ourselves, maybe out of pride, maybe just out of insecurity, God, I pray that you would correct that by showing us the superiority of the gospel of grace, how that is the gospel you love how that is the gospel that you, yourself, who wrote it, would not have exchanged for any gospel that we could come up with, so we certainly should not either. And Father, I pray for each of those who feel too far off, either too far off to become a Christian or a vi that they are a very insecure one, wondering if the gospel is powerful enough for them. I pray that Paul's testimony of his own salvation would add to our confidence and hope and expectation that we need not be insecure about what Christ has accomplished, that grace achieves what is impossible for us, and that is why we give glory to you. In Christ's name we pray, amen.